This is Toastcaster, your communication leadership and learning lab, your host, Greg Gazin, speaker, blogger, author, and syndicated veteran columnist of Troy Media. Episode 148, How to Host a Live or Virtual TEDx Event, Part 1, with our special guest, Noel Bentley. Hello, everybody. This is Greg Gazin, and you're probably wondering where we've been. Well, we've had to take a little hiatus. We'll be sharing a little bit about that with you in episode 150 coming up a little bit later in the month. But we wanted to make sure that we dedicated this episode to our special guest. So please enjoy the podcast. There are many places you can go to find out about how to speak at a TED or a TEDx conference, or get on a TED. But what is less often heard is about being an MC or a host. Of course, when it comes to any event where they're speaking, the spotlight is always on the speaker, but a host or an MC can make or break an event. Just Google Oscars, best host and worst host, and you'll know what I mean. Our guest today has hosted three TEDx events, two live, and in fact, the last one as we record today is exactly one month to the day. It was a virtual event. So this gentleman who we're speaking to today knows what he's talking about, and I'm sure he's still on a high from it. He's Noel Bentley. He's a freelancer who is very active in the speaking and volunteer community in the lower mainland of British Columbia, Canada. He started a project called Power of Three Speaking, a new way of doing keynote speaking. He's also currently a storytelling coach for Surrey Shares, a federally funded project that helps improve health and well-being for those 55 plus in the Surrey, British Columbia area through storytelling and life skills coaching. He's also been a Toastmaster for 10 years, very close to completing his distinguished Toastmaster designation, and he loves to compete in contests. As for Ted, he's been involved with TEDx for four years, three with TEDx Bear Creek Park, where he's worn multiple hats as program coordinator, coach, curator, host slash MC for the past three years. And even with his busy schedule, he's found the time to come and speak with us today. Noel Bentley, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks, Greg. Good to hear you again and good afternoon. Tell us a little bit about TEDx Bear Creek. Where is that? What's it all about? Well, Bear Creek Park is one of the parks, unsurprisingly, in Surrey little Surrey trivia, it is the city of parks. And when you get a license for TED, they want you to give a name that is uh, represents your area. They don't give out big city names very easily anymore. So mm. even something like Surrey, which is actually approaching, I think, 600,000 people, probably bigger than Metro Vancouver, they won't give us that name until we've sort of jumped through a lot of hoops and, and proved that we're sort of worthy of having that bigger city name. So Bear Creek Park is a a beautiful park, I guess, the north of Surrey. We chose that because we thought it was representative and challenging to choose a name for your TED. The biggest one in Vancouver used to be Stanley Park, which I think a lot of people know. They'd have 3,000 people jammed in a beautiful theater. So you go down a rabbit hole when you talk about naming. So Bear Creek Park, we thought it was cool. I have a bear puppet as a mascot. We may or may not want to get into that part later, how we appeared on stage. Out of curiosity, I know that these TEDx locations are location-based, and of course, in your case, it's Bear Creek Park. Is there a theme associated with it, or is there something special about this particular location, or is it just specifically your geographic location? 
they usually do want something geographic. I think of Seattle, the one that became TEDx Seattle used to be TEDx Rainier, the large mountain and nearby. We really wanted to select something that sort of get, had a Surrey flavor, but the intention's always been to become TEDx Surrey. We're really hoping that by next year we'll do that. It means rebranding, cut our teeth, prove that we're going to uphold the TEDx brand, and then at that point they'll let us get Surrey. But in the meantime, we had a meeting. We said throw out the names, and TEDx Bear Creek Park won the vote. Excellent, and obviously you've done it three times already, so fourth time will be certainly a charm. Out of curiosity, how did you get this opportunity to be part of all this? Have you heard the term failing upwards? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know what? I, th- I think back to that, and, and you and I haven't been in a Toastmaster group for a long time together. That was the name of one of my speeches. I remember. <laughs> it came true out in Surrey. I tried to audition for to give a TEDx talk and failed miserably. <laughs> However, I know the person who was the licensee at that time, and he asked me if I wanted to be involved and felt that I would be a good host. And I was a host with another person the first year we did TEDx Bear Creek Park. So it was the person I know. He happened to be a district director in Toastmasters, which is he ran sort of half of BC for the Toastmasters organization. And he's a friend of mine. And so kind of who you know, and also showing what skills you have and possibilities. So a little bit of luck, a little bit of opportunity, but also not worrying about falling flat on your face the first time. So sometimes not necessarily being successful the first time is is a good opportunity. I'm curious now, as a speaker, as a Toastmaster, as a facilitator, as a coach, how did this feel to be part of this? Like, what was your feeling? Because I, I, I watched the last one. I saw you up on stage. Like, how did you take it? Being a host, uh, which is what they call the MCs of the event throughout the TED world, is an amazing opportunity. It's exciting. It's terrifying, frankly. As you said, you can make or break, and usually there's more opportunity to ruin an event, let's be honest, as the host, rather than to completely elevate it. So you really are the caretaker to make sure everything goes as well as you possibly can. And normally you don't have the benefit of having the virtual, the recorded event. Though last time I, I was live as well. It's a wonderful mix. It really is kind of like I think is people who jump out of planes. <laughs> they, they love the exhilaration, knowing that things could go terribly wrong, but that's okay. That's part of you. You really have to embrace the fact that it's, in essence, kind of like live theater. (laughs) Do as best you can. Prepare everything you possibly can. It really does matter, all the preparation that you do. It pays off in the end. When we have it in person, a normal TED event is actually kind of an all-day event, nine to four. But the video pre-recorded one, we made it shorter because people are online. So that's only four hours. That's still a lot of time to be live. We're going to get to the preparation shortly because I know there's people out there that I think after listening to this episode, I'm sure we're going to want to give it a shot or see if they can find a way of emceeing because yes, you may not make it as a TEDx speaker, you might, but perhaps doing an emcee. I'm thinking back, I'm picturing you doing speeches on stage. Going back to that first time that you were on stage, it sounded like you were pretty nervous. Did you feel like you you couldn't do it or you were going to bail? I never thought I'd bail. There's just something about when I joined the organization of Toastmasters that I felt the need to conquer something that had conquered me in the past. Absolutely. I I was just not typical, but that story of needing to be able to express yourself better, being terrified, but embracing it. And I kind of feel if you're not a little worried about what's going to happen, if you don't have a little bit of fear in you, it's probably not that important for you, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) 
I always felt like there was a parachute, but I've learned my lessons along the way. There's been lots of things that did not go as well, including hosting the first one, to be honest. <laughs> so in terms of surprises about the situation or the experience of yourself, I'm just going to put you on the spot for a second. What was the biggest thing perhaps you may have learned about yourself? The biggest thing I think I learned was as host, you have to remember that you're there to help the whole event succeed. And there's a big but here. You have to remember to take care of yourself and your role. If you get too wrapped up in helping in other aspects, it's actually to a detriment. So you have to be a little selfish as a host too. You have to learn at what point to get help with something and say, I need someone else to take care of this. I need assistance. I need this. And you realize that when I looked at my script or what I had written out, my points, I had approximately two years ago, 3,500 words plus for what I was speaking. So it's double every TED talk in essence. And you realize that, oh my goodness, I need to be better prepared. I need to say no sometimes because if I don't, I will not be the best host I can possibly be. Lesson learned. It sounds like you learned to accomplish something you didn't think you might've been able to do or do as well as you did. I think that's it. I think I knew I could always do it, especially as host, you want to do it in a way that complements the entire, that helps the event run smoothly, kind of like a someone who's a perfect server at a restaurant. You know they're there. You, you love what they've done. They may not be why you remember the event, though. But in the background, they might have taken care of five, six, seven different things that could have gone terribly wrong, and they were so prepared, and they knew how to handle everything. Yeah, it's, it's really a, an interesting set of skills that you bring. You have one foot in sort of the speaking, and you have one set almost in kind of the coaching and bringing people along. It's unlike any other role I've ever had. Yeah, the taking care of yourself first is a really good piece of advice. And and when you hear that in many cases, whether you're a caregiver or whether you're just doing some other type of event, I liken it to being on a plane quite often when the person comes on the loudspeaker. And of course, not very many of us are on planes these days, but they come on the loudspeaker and they said that in the event of cabin pressure dropping is to make sure that you put the mask on yourself first. And then, of course, your, uh, your children or other people that you might be caring for. Because if you can't take care of yourself, you can't find a way of taking care of others. That's, that's so perfect and apt because also it literally has to do with breathing too. <laughs> Relaxation. <laughs> perfect. Yes. Don't forget to breathe. Yes. I've been doing a little yoga lately and I keep forgetting to breathe. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the role Looking back at the information you shared with us, you wore multiple hats. You were a program coordinator, you're a coach, you're a curator and host MC. I know we want to talk primarily about the MC or you said host is the preferable term to use for TEDx. Maybe just out of curiosity, just can you just touch upon those other roles just a little bit? What needs to be done in those? Sure. There's because there's a, there's actually a, a sequence that it goes through. You our group and especially the leader, his name is Alan Warburton, he had to attend one of the big TED conferences that's actually when it's happening, it happens in downtown Vancouver now, and then sort of get permission to grow the the conference. What you get at that conference is a lot of help from people who've been running TEDx's for about 10 or 11 years, maybe maybe almost 12 now could be the, the limit since they introduced TEDx's. And you look for people and you invite them. When we put out a call to say, let's find the people, you know, you get more than 100 applications, but it's not necessarily what you're looking for, for ideas worth spreading. So curation becomes, is the first part, is to find those speakers and find those speakers with ideas that we think will engage an audience and find them from different walks of life and different areas of human endeavor. So that's curation. Curation is finding those speakers. 
And then once you found those speakers, it's coaching. And we're pretty hardcore at 10X Bear <laughs> Creek Park. And so we've heard because we had speakers who have been at other 10Xs. I don't think they knew what they're getting into when they said yes to us, though we try and tell them up front. <laughs> it's four months of intensive coaching where you're paired up with a speaker coach. Plus, we're even going to introduce, we have workshop style training. And you may rewrite your talk 10 times. And that might be a minimum. All extraneous words out. We really put them through the mill. But we've heard that people, even people who speak regularly for a living, appreciate the process because a TED Talk is a, a different beast. It's not a speech. It's not a presentation. It's not a seminar. It's a very specific type of engagement with the audience. People really have to commit to mentally and almost physically going through all of that. And at the end, we feel that the results speak for themselves. So it's not just taking a speech that you have. So I've heard where Toastmasters speakers or even professional speakers, keynote speakers that do platform speaking have had to change their speeches significantly, sometimes much to their chagrin, but they've changed them significantly to A, fit the time restraint, but also to fit the raison d'etre as what TED and what TEDx are all about. Exactly. We do try and follow the TED model as much as we can. You are a conduit for your idea. When you talk about time constraint, this year for virtual, I wouldn't call it a hard cap, but it was pretty close, 12 minutes. TED used to be 18 minutes. We find 12 minutes is a really a sweet spot for audience attention. And if you can't get your idea across in 12 minutes for the most part, we find that you, our coaching didn't do a very good job. That's the end of the coaching when you're ready to get on stage with your 12 minutes. Generally, no notes, though there are exceptions to that. And of course, then once you're ready for game day, it is, it is a live event as, as best we can. And that's when the hosting comes into it. And the program coordination is in the background. What's the best order of speakers? How do we best engage people? How do we have two talks that don't sort of sound similar in a row? Mm. And we also include what you won't see for your TED Talks is energizers. We also go out and find people who will four to six minutes. And when we're live, get people out of their seats. Three years in a row, we've had someone teach bonger dancing. We've had a choir last year, and we had someone show us how to disco dance. We've had people do amazing breathing exercises. So we also break up using your brain and engage different parts, basically, of your body and mind during to help keep people refreshed. So there's all sorts of things you don't see when you Google the TEDx or see the TEDx speakers that happen at the actual event. You'll never see me. And you'll never see all the energizers. But if you can see it live, it just adds to the experience we feel. And that's the feedback we've been getting. I was so surprised when I saw all that on stage. I thought, well, that's fantastic. It's somewhat cleansing the palate. It sort of breaks the monotony, especially when now when you're at home, you're sitting. Now, yes, you can get up and walk around. Obviously, you can't do that in a live event. But a lot of us are glued to our computers these days on Zoom or, or WebEx or whatever we're on having that little bit of a break actually keeps you engaged, but yet it's also a nice, a little bit of a change. It changes the environment, changes the atmosphere. It does. It, it, we call them energizers. And I know TEDx Stanley Park had definitely did that. We, we felt there was an amazing value in it. Yeah, you're right. If you don't refresh people, even the best speakers, it's hard on your brain to continuously hear challenging talks one after the other. So because And you're right. I hope people got up at home and bonger danced. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was priceless. So we're going to get to the MC part in a moment, but I have a curiosity. 
Is the MC involved in the other areas as well? You talked about the coaching, you talked about the curation, you talked about the coordination. Is he or she typically present at that time, sort of observing things that are going on, taking notes, et cetera, or typically does he or she come in later? My experience has been at one year, I basically kind of did it all. I was, I was a curator. I helped find people. I helped coach people. And then I was the host as well. Also program coordinator. That, that's a bit much. So I've had to take a couple of things off my plate. I do find it very important for the host and the MC to be involved as much as possible from the start. You have to, if you don't know your speakers, if you don't get to know them, if you don't find out things about them, the introductions become pretty stagnant. I have a very specific way of doing my introductions, at least that I like, that I like to find connections between the speakers, even if they may not be exactly to do with their talk. One year, it was the fact that two people played chess these two speakers who were talking about completely different things, but it was a nice way to bridge, right? Like how do you, instead of saying that was a wonderful talk, okay, let's completely change to something else and having those abrupt changes that kind of knock people out of the moment. If you can find some way to bridge it, no matter what it is, <laughs> you can have some fun with it too, and maybe get people engaged in even a little chuckle or something. So yes, I feel that the host must be involved at all times, even if they don't perform the functions even before the people are chosen, you should be looking at the applications. A, a great host will be there all the way through because then if your program coordinator is as well, which is ideal for a host, then you kind of already know where people sort of fall in in the program. You watch the coaching and say, this person needs to be last. This person needs to be first because you, you don't place people just on their content, but also their energy levels and what emotions they're going to invoke or evoke in the audience. It gets complicated. This sounds very similar to a speaker who's speaking for a client or a conference or convention, getting to know the client or the audience ahead of time so that he or she could be better prepared to present or give that presentation to make sure that they find a way of of connecting with the audience. Absolutely. You have to do your research beforehand. We've seen events where you can tell they haven't. To be honest, not that they didn't do a good job, but you can tell. It's interesting hearing feedback from people unsolicited about the bridges and the connections between the speakers. Humans love making connections, even if they aren't necessarily real or proven. That's how our (laughs) brains work. Let's be honest. Why not use that? Why not have fun with it? That makes sense. So absolutely, you're certainly breaking the ice. You've touched into the role of the MC. So now I think people are saying, okay, Noel, Tell us about the role. What does the MC have to do? Obviously, he or she has to prepare. You've already talked about being there way before the actual event happening, sometimes maybe even four months ahead of time. Tell us a little bit more about the role, what you have to do, what did you have to do to prepare, et cetera. Yes. As that host and being part of the leadership team of TEDx Bear Creek Park, even though I'm not a curator again this year, I probably do want to uh, leave my paws in the in the coaching area and the program coordination. Just I, I believe it should kind of fall to the host or the host and at least one other person just to de- to make those decisions. And when we say program coordination, we say you know what happens from the time you first open up the theater to the time people leave or the virtual theater in the same way. So you know and you help place each of the pieces there with intent and with a purpose and for the best experience, as you said, for the audience. It's for them, not necessarily for the speakers. Someone may want to speak first. That's not really what it's about. It's all about what the viewer and the TEDx audience will experience. 
as the host and being part of it, what else happens? You have a big script to write. I don't like using the word script, but I can't find a better word. You have to have notes about all of the speakers, all of the introductions of each section. So in fact, every energizer, every break has its own bridge to it. You probably end up starting out with 4,000 words to kind of pare down. And that's if you're being quick about your 30 second to one minute in between each speaker kind of thing. There's announcements. You have to uh, give yourself spaces in your script where you know there's going to be surprises. You know there'll be an announcement about someone who left their car lights on or that there's been a, an issue in the lobby or we've made a change for the lunch. That's the other thing about being host is you know things will change. You have to be adaptable, but you literally have to memorize at least a 3,000-word script. I believe, in my opinion, I don't like having cue cards in front of me that everyone can see. As a TEDx speaker, you are so vulnerable, as we know. They can see everything you do. You can't hide them on a lectern or a podium. They are in your hand so people can see them. They don't want to see your eyes go down. They want to be connected with you. And you can connect with the audience as a host. You want them to enjoy those few moments that you have with them. And you can improvise uh, once you feel comfortable. What's something else I learned? Humor, go for the low-hanging fruit. It's okay to make the easy, fun jokes and get the audience laughing along with you if you want to go a little crazier later on. Here's what I did. I, I, got, I have to say, the audience seemed to be receptive. One year when we were at the Bell Performing Arts Center, 1,000 people, beautiful theater where they recorded the anthems for the 2010 Olympics. Blessed to be on stage there. The crowd seemed to be enjoying things, seemed to be receptive. We just had a gentleman come out and teach uh, disco dancing. And he had a sequin jacket, killer sequin jacket. <laughs> so I said, what are we backstage? Just before I said, Brody, I'm begging you, just leave your jacket. I know it's important. I'll take care of it. And when I came out next time, I was wearing the jacket just to have a little fun. <laughs> and, you know, the audience got all that, you know. Saw that coming. <laughs> how could you not notice it? As a host, you basically have to be comfortable with having this whole structure ready to go, that you can fall back on, that you know by heart, and then can you introduce moments? And then when the speaker can't come on, do you have two or three minutes of filler that doesn't seem like filler? Preparation. You have to be prepared to prepare and over-prepare like you probably never prepared before. Getting to know the speakers, uh, having some engagement with them is, is very important because in person, you shake their hand. You might hug them. They are looking to you. You're the last friendly face they see before they turn and face those lights. You have to work on your social skills that way. You have to, no matter if you, even if you're having a bad day, you have to be prepared for that. There are things that might happen backstage. So you have to uh, have all of your things ready. <laughs> you have to have all of your accoutrements. You have to have your water. You have to have your notes. You have to have whatever you need to do. And as host on the day, you have to be on your game no matter what happens. There's an emotional part of being a host. And the audience is not going to know this, but I'll, you know this. My nickname, the first Toastmaster group that I joined with you was Grumpy Cat. Mm -hmm. Being the cat that had this frown uh, became well known. You can't be Grumpy Cat on stage. So there's a lot of work you have to do on yourself in, the, in order to be a host. And it's a real challenge to be a genuine, positive person on stage that's supporting others. It's an amazing learning experience to be able to do that. And you have to also prepare yourself mentally to kind of be not on an island, but a little bit different uh, role than everyone else. So it's a strange, wonderful world to be host of a big event. I, I really, really want to continue doing it. And I think we've had success. 
but it means putting all of that effort in. And then, of course, you also have to stay on time. I noticed mm-hmm. that with the virtual event you did, that your finishing time was, I think, two minutes before the scheduled time. And I, with an event like that, I was just totally blown away as to how you were able to stay on track. Well, you know, okay, it goes back to preparation. So everything you've done, we've actually had dry runs. We had an amazing production company. The Leaders Media are the people that did that and their partner in it that we've hired. We had people who committed to it, having your script, knowing what you can drop, what you can add, and building in just those little bits that you know will happen somewhere. Don't do your first hosting as hosting a, a big TEDx event. Learn how to host at a Toastmasters. Learn how to be a Toastmaster. Learn how to host small events and how to go with the ebb and flow of what's happening. And you're right. Sometimes you will cut things down. Sometimes you realize you have an extra minute and you can let that extra acknowledgement to the audience out or do whatever it is. It's a skill and you just have to practice it. And there's no better way to do it than to just commit to it and go out and do it and learn and allow yourself to make the mistakes. It's just so much easier once you've made them (laughs) and experienced them. You probably won't do them again, but if you do them again, then at least you can make fun of them with the audience and they'll laugh (laughs) along with you. I did that at the last one. I had my, okay, I had my the speaking coach come up to me and say, you're using great, the word great all the time. Fine. You're right. I literally looked at my script and said, you're right. It's in there 20 times. Let's have fun with it. But it was great. <laughs> so you actually brought up a couple of other good, really good points is that you, in terms of preparation and in terms of execution, there's, there's the rehearsal. And then there's also working with your partners. You talked about the audiovisual company. There's probably other people that you work with. There's probably sponsors that maybe that you have to work with as as well. So these are also very important. Well, thanks for tuning in to the first part of a two-part series, How to Host a Live or Virtual TEDx Event with our guest, Noel Bentley. Our special guest will be back for part two to continue his conversation. Once again, this is Greg Gazin. We appreciate you tuning in. Now, I'm not sure how you joined us, whether you joined us through directly through Toastcaster.com or iTunes, but either way, you can pick up the podcasts there. If you really enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you took a moment to leave us some feedback on iTunes because it really helps with our ratings. Plus, also feel free to drop us a line. Tell us what types of things you're interested in, what your Toastmaster specialty is, or what kinds of things you like to speak about. And perhaps maybe we'll even have you on the show. This is Greg Gazin. Till the next time. This episode was sponsored by Corey Outsmarts the Butterflies. A new book by Greg Gazin, geared to ages 8 to 80. Whether you want to improve your speaking skills or build your confidence, this short read is suitable for all ages. It's available at outsmartingthebutterflies.com. <laughs>